Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 34 through 46. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I know that uh, usually the first Sunday in September, there's a Labor Day weekend, it's like, Everybody wants to get one last vacation in, and uh, but you guys made it here this morning, so the Lord bless you. I was telling Darren, I said, you know, we had more of the youth walk. I think more youth. We have more youth going downstairs than people in the church this morning. But but that's a cool thing to have. It's awesome to see all these kids at church, and so very very cool. Well, Matthew chapter 22. We're going to finish up the chapter this morning, starting in verse 34. We read, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. The title of my message this morning is, Love is the Key. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we could spend in your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here and teaching us through your word what you have for each one of us that are here this morning. Lord, help us to have open ears to receive all that you have to say to us. And Father, we do pray for our kids downstairs as they're being taught your word as well. Lord, that even at a young age, they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. And Father, I pray the same thing for us Upstairs, if, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would see their need for you and come to you in faith today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We pray your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's been many, many songs written about love. I think most songs are, most songs are love songs. I looked up just before the service. In the 50s, Fred Astaire and Jane Powell sang a song in a movie with this actual title. It was called How could you believe me when I said I loved you when you know I've been a liar all my life? Actual title for the song. (laughs) Wow. We know in the 70s, Tina Turner sang, What's Love Got to Do With It? Got to do with it. In the 80s, Bonnie Teller sang, Once upon a time I was falling in love, but now I'm only falling apart. Whitney Houston in the 90s sang, I'll always love you. But now, according to Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, I'll never love again. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, love makes the world go round. I've heard some people say, well, love doesn't really make the world go round. It just makes people so dizzy it feels like it. But love without a question is the strongest and the most exhilarating of all human emotion. And because of that, volumes upon volumes of poems and songs and, and plays and novels and films have been produced on the subject and, and the theme of love. And now we're going to learn 
about this thing, if we're going to learn about this thing called love, instead of looking at the top hits of the 70s and 80s and today, we must look to God's Word for our answers. Paul the Apostle had a top hit song over in 1 Corinthians 13, in which he devoted a whole chapter to the subject of love. And he said this, closing out the chapter, he says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. So it isn't with any wonder that when Jesus was asked about the greatest uh, commandment, that Jesus answered by saying the greatest commandment is to love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what we're going to look at this morning. What does God's Word say about loving Him? And what does God's Word say about loving others? If you're taking notes, those are our simple two points. Number one, loving God. Number two, loving others. Number one, loving God. Now, we need to understand the backdrop of what's going on here. Jesus had just dealt with the Sadducees. And if you recall, these are the religious leaders, the ones that did not believe in life beyond the grave. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they come to Christ with their hypothetical situation. They talk about a woman who was married and her husband died and then she married the husband's brother and, and he died and then they married another brother and he died and married another brother. He, seven times this woman was married. So they asked Jesus the question, what's wrong with a woman's cooking? No, that's not what she asked. He said, well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus responds, you don't understand. You don't know number one scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Proving to them, yes, there is a resurrection. And yes, God has it uh, there for a reason. He put them in their place and answered their question. But now you have the Pharisees coming to Jesus. And they have a question about the law. Notice in verse 34 it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. That word silence there actually means to muzzle. I mean, Jesus completely shut down the Sadducees. They had nothing more to say. Now, no doubt there was a mixed emotion on the part of the Pharisees because, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they went back and forth over this subject of, of the resurrection. The fact that Jesus put the Sadducees in their place, they probably go, yeah, all right. But they're going, yeah, but, you know, uh, you know, uh, not so excited about it because, on the other hand, they wanted to see Jesus put in this place. And so they get into this holy huddle and they think, okay, now it's our turn. Look at verse 35. We read, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Now we know that there's all sorts of lawyer jokes out there. Like, what do you get when you have ten lawyers buried up to their necks in sand? You go get more sand. No. What's black and brown and looks good on a lawyer? A Doberman pincher? One more. What's the difference between God and a lawyer? God doesn't think he's a lawyer. Hey, I didn't say there are all sorts of good lawyer jokes out there. I just said there was lawyer jokes out there. I've got nothing against lawyers. I believe in our society today, we need more godly attorneys like never before. I think at Jay Seculo and the American Center for Law and Justice, they do a great, great job. But this fellow here called a lawyer in verse 35 was different. This isn't a lawyer as we think of a lawyer uh, today, you know, defending, you know, social issues. Rather, this was a man who was an expert on biblical law. A man who would devote 
all of his time to the study of ancient scriptures, manuscripts, and, and because of his great studying, he's probably thinking, the Pharisees, I think, are thinking, okay, let's get our best guy here. Let's get our, our you know, our, our brainiac here. We're going to get him, and he's going to trip up Jesus. They thought they could defeat Jesus in an argument. So the lawyer is trying to trap Jesus, but instead, as we'll read, the, the Lord trapped the lawyer. Now, it was a good question that was asked, but it was asked with a bad motive. Look again at verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, what he's asking is, which is the heaviest? What is the weightiest? What is the most important commandment in the law? Now, understand the Pharisees had endless debates about what commandments were greater and what commandments were lesser. They basically had a document, a document that had 613 commandments in the law, and they identified 248 of those commandments as being positive, and 365 as those being negative. And so they knew that no one could keep all of the commandments, so they identified some commandments as these are the heavy commandments, and, and other commandments as light. The heavy commandments were the real important ones, and, and, and the light commandments were not so important, no big deal if you broke them. I think a lot of people do the same thing today. The Roman Catholics, they call it mortal and venial sins. It's like, well, it's just a little law. It's not a big deal, but this is a big law, so you shouldn't break that one. But in reality, how many links in a chain need to break before that chain is broken? Just one. Just one. The Bible says if we offend in one point, you're broken God's law, and you're guilty of breaking, uh, being lawbreakers. So they were all into this, well, if you do this, and, 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 and then this is a big law, but then this is a little law, and, and that's okay. So they wanted to get Jesus mixed up with this debate between the heavy and the light commandments. No doubt, hoping to spark that controversy. So the lawyer asked him, of all the 613, uh, what, what is the greatest commandment? But Jesus isn't going to be drawn into the little debate. Instead, he gives them this classic and, and brilliant answer. He takes two scriptures out of the Old Testament from different places, and he joins them into one. Look at verse 37. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus here is quoting, first of all, from what the Jews called the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. The word Shema comes from the uh, phrase uh, of the verse which says, Hear, O Israel, which is the word Shema, means, it means, means to hear. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, we have that part of the verse that he's quoting. Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Then, Jesus quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where he says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't give the one commandment to this lawyer. Instead, he added the second commandment of importance in that we love our neighbors as ourselves. He took the two scriptures and he joined them together. So here's what Jesus is saying. Instead of worrying about all these little commandments and which one is worse than the other, get back to this. Love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Makes complete sense, doesn't it? Because if I love, you know, the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, I will naturally want to do what He wants me to do, which would be to love those around me. 
In other words, when Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he, he's summarizing this all into one word, and that word is love. And then he says uh, that in verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the entire Ten Commandments, the entire ceremonial laws, the entire moral law, they all hang on these two commandments. Now we know that the commandments were given to Moses and they were on two stones and they were divided into two sections. I say four and six, it's really not five and five as some think. Four and six, the first four commandments really have to do with our relationship with God. The final six deal with our relationship with others. See, if I really love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind, I will not want to have any other God before me. I will not want to have any idols before me or take His name in vain. And if I love my neighbor as myself, I'm not going to steal from him. I'm not going to want to kill him. I'm not going to want to covet what belongs to him. So the idea is if I can get down this basic truth of loving God, everything else will find its proper place. Now it's when I'm not loving God that I have a problem with these commandments. It was Augustine who said, love God and do what you please. That sounds dangerous, but, but really, if we love God as we ought to, then we're going to want to do those things that please God. Now, what does it mean to love the Lord? I mean, it means that if you really love God, you're going to long for that personal communion with Him. If you really love the Lord, you're going to want to spend time with Him. I mean, that's how it is if you really love someone, right? You want to spend time with them. You enjoy their company. You enjoy their companionship. When you hear of husbands and wives spending less time together and taking separate vacations, that's not a good sign. Now, I don't say this to impress you, but if it does, good. (laughs) I will be married to my wife on the ninth of this month for 41 years. That's awesome. I'm I'm blessed. There's no person I would rather be with than hanging out with than my wife. She's my best friend. She's homesick today and, and it bumps me out. I want to be with her. I value her opinion. And we're together a lot. That's because we're in love. And in the same way, if you're truly in love with the Lord, you want to spend time with the Lord, be in fellowship with Him. What else does it mean to love the Lord? Well, it means that you're going to love the things that He loves. You're going to love the things that God loves. And we know the things that God loves because He's declared them in His Word. The psalmist declares, Oh, how I love your Word. It's my meditation day and night. So here's my question. Do you love the Word of God? I mean, really, really love it. Not tolerate it. Not, oh, I should be reading it. Or, oh, I read my five verses today. Glad that's over. No, do you really love it? Really want to get into it? Listen, God loves His Word. Let me ask you this. Do you like hanging out with the people of God? God loves His church. Do you love lost people? God does. If you love, love the Lord, you'll long for fellowship with Him and you'll, you'll love the things that He loves. Now, on the flip side of that, a person who loves the Lord is going to hate the things that He hates. You'll hate the things that the Lord hates because His nature is becoming your nature. Now, Proverbs 6, 16-19 gives us uh, seven things that the Lord hates. It says there, Yes, seven are an abomination to Him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. So there's a short list of things you can, you can hate that God hates. Psalm 97.10 says you, that you that love the Lord hate evil. So God hates sin. We should hate sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 12 to abhor that which is evil. The problem is 
We often get fascinated with that which is evil. Whoa, did you hear that? What that person said? Man, I got to tell so-and-so what this person said there. They got to hear what they said. Oh, so you can pray, of course. Uh, No. You should hate evil. See it as God sees it. That person that wants to spread gossip, that image that comes up on the computer screen or TV or whatever, turn away from it. Turn it off. It's not right. I know it's something that God hates, and I don't want to be a part of something that God hates. I certainly don't want to love it. One more thing. A person who loves the Lord will long for the return of Jesus Christ. Are you looking, are you longing for the return of Jesus Christ? Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.8, There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me in that day, and not to me only, but to all who love His appearing. And your love is appearing, uh, by that I mean, are you longing for the return of Jesus Christ? I'm excited. We're going to be starting Matthew 24, probably in a couple weeks, and, and, and what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And this was the response to a question that was asked Jesus about the end of the world. And I think it's, it's something we need to look at today, and we're going to carefully work our way through Matthew 24 and try and get a better understanding of what's happening in this world around us. But again, let me say this, a Christian uh, who loves God is going to look forward to his return. Now, how are we to love the Lord? Well, note the repetition in verse 37. With all your, with all your, with all your. He says, uh, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Mark adds, with all of your strength. Now, I think it's kind of difficult to break these areas up and to get a real understanding of what Jesus meant. But let's give it a shot. It's interesting that Jesus starts off with love God with all your heart because the heart in the Hebrew has the idea of the total uh, being of the person, the personal being, the whole individual. It means one's core, the entirety of one's personal being. I think the closest thing that we can get in our culture, in our language today, would be to have a sincere love. What, what Jesus is saying is, love God sincerely with all your heart. He says, love God with all your soul. Now, the soul there would refer to the will of or volition of man or the act of making a choice or a decision. It also may be tied into our emotions that we should have an emotional type love directed towards God. And then he says, love God with all your mind. So our love should be intelligent. Too many people think, well, if I become to Christ, I've got to check my brains at the door. That's not how it works. When you become a Christian, you have to, you know, you, you, you know it, it's more than that. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3, 2, that in order to be holy, our first step is to set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Being a Christian involves our mind. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, we need to renew our minds. How are our minds renewed? Getting back to the Word of God through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Say, but but Tom, I'm not very smart, I'm not very bright, I'm not very intellectual. Well, welcome to the club, because neither am I. But God's given us His Word, and just as you read it, He'll speak to your heart and you study it, and you'll grow in the knowledge of God and His Word. But there there are those who say, well, I I love God, but they don't read their Bibles, they don't study the Word. How can you love God if you're not reading His love letter to you? I mean, if you have a loved one go on a trip, far trip, and they send you email after email, would you just leave them and not open it up? I mean, just sit them in your inbox and, and never open them, never read them? No, you'd probably read them over and over and over again, save them, you know, onto your computer, man, maybe even print it up. Oh, this is, oh, this is great. 
Listen, God sends you a love letter called the Bible and we close it up and we send it in the corner and say, oh, I love God, I really love the Lord. But you're not reading his love letter to you. You're not reading what he wrote to you about himself. Do you want to know him better? Do you want to listen to him speak to, to you? Then you need to read his word. Educate our minds. And then Mark's gospel says we're to love God with all our strength. This speaks of the intensity of love. That our love should be a, a serving love. So we should love God sincerely. We should love God with the will and the emotion. We should love God intellectually with our minds. And we should love God with all of our strength. That is the intensity of love. That we should give our physical strength, energy, intensity to serving God. Now some people, they love God with all of their minds, but there's no heart in it. They love to study. They love to be correct in their theology, but there's no passion in their life. Some people love God with all of their heart and their passion and their emotion, but they haven't disciplined themselves to study God's Word and they're easily led astray. No, we need all of these things put together to love God as we ought to. That's why I think of Peter. Remember when Peter crashed and burned and Jesus came to him, met him there by the Sea of Galilee, and they questioned him. He said, Simon Peter, the son of Jonas, do you love me? He could have asked Peter any number of things. He said, Simon, son of Jonas, do you have faith in me? Simon Peter, Simon, are you theologically correct? Simon, are you going to be obedient to me? No, he didn't ask any of those questions. He simply asked him, do you love me? And by the way, he asked him three times, which you know, may have something to do with the fact that Peter denied him three times. But why did he ask him, do you love me? Because Jesus knew that he, if, if Peter loved him as he should, then all of these other areas would be taken care of. Yes, if we can love the Lord as we ought to, then our life will find its proper balance. And really, our love to God is just a response to His love to us. 1 John 4.19, we love Him because He first loved us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I think that's one of the greatest words in, in, in this verse there is the word so. It wasn't God kind of liked the world. You know, God you know, was putting up with the world. No, He so loved the world that He gave His Son. So if God so loved me, running from Him, wicked, sinful, before I came to Christ, wouldn't it be fitting that I would then respond to that love by giving Him my whole heart, by giving my whole soul, my whole mind, my whole strength? Certainly that's a fitting response. Now, this brings us to point number two, loving others. Look at verse 39. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Here's Jesus' point. The love for God and the love for man cannot be divided. Now this is a tough one. And I wish it wasn't true. I wish I could love God but didn't have to love certain people. And I'm sure there are certain people that wish that they could love God and not have to love me. But, but the love for God and the love for man cannot be divided. You see, you can't, can't yell and scream at your spouse and then come to church and sing, Oh, I love you, Lord. And I hate my wife. It doesn't work that way. You, you can't think, oh, I love you, Lord, but my husband's a jerk. You can't do that. Again, the love for God and the love for man cannot be divided. But the problem is, most of us, you know, we separate the two because of our TV dinner spirituality. You know, in a TV dinner, you have your, you know, your Salisbury steak in the little compartment. You have the peas over here and the mashed potatoes. And then you've got the cherry cobbler in the separate compartment. And we do the same thing spiritually, right? 
Oh yes, I love God. We say, I'm going to worship Sunday morning. But on Monday morning, we call our boss an idiot behind his back. And on Wednesday, we complain about our neighbor, how he idles his car too early in the morning and it's waking me up. And then Sunday, we're back to worshiping the Lord again. We make these little compartments in our lives thinking that that's how we treat people. It has nothing to do with our relationship with God. Listen, our walk with God is not a TV dinner. It should be a chicken pot pie. More like that, you know. If you really love God, then inevitably we're going to love people and our lives will become more like that. Not in compartments, but the peas and the potatoes and the chicken is going to all be mixed together. That's what our, if our love is genuine. It'll naturally flow into a love for people. Listen, when you're captivated by the love of God, you're also held captive to love people. And that starts with our wives, starts with our kids, goes to our brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord at church. It even spills out into the world. No, Jesus even said, love your enemies. Oh, Lord, no. (laughs) That's a hard one. Listen, that means you have to love your boss. That means you have to love that, that hard-to-get-along-with relative. That means you have to love those that are not acting loving towards you. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, by this all men shall know that you are my disciple. How? By the Christian t-shirt you wear. No, that's not how. By the, the, the cross with the gold chain that you wear. No. By going to church on Sunday morning. No. By the love you have one for another. That's the mark of a Christian. They'll know we're Christians by our love, not by our haircuts or by our clothes or, or by, our, by, by what we, anything, but it's by our love. And how great that is when people who aren't believers can see the love that you have for them and for God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us, Beloved, let us, not love, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Isn't that verse amazing? If you have been born again, born of God, the birthmark of the child of God is love. It'll be evident in the things that we do for people, the love that will show. Now at this point you might say, okay, okay, I get it. I will love others, but I'm not going to like them. Well, look close at what Jesus says in verse 39. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that imply? Well, it implies you like yourself. I mean, there are those who say, well, in order to love my neighbor, I need to learn to love myself. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he's saying, you already love yourself, just as you you take care of yourself, you think about yourself all the time. Now you need to do that for your neighbor. See, he knows that we love ourselves. He knows that we take care of ourselves. He knows that we think about ourselves all the time, that we pamper ourselves. And he knows that the problem isn't that we need to learn to love ourselves. It's we need to love others the way that we already love ourselves. Ephesians 5.29, Paul says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And God knows you know, that, that we are very self-focused and very self-centered people. You know, so many times, especially in a marriage relationship, if you're a husband and a wife here today, I know that so many times into a marriage relationship, we're always thinking about ourselves. Well, he doesn't do that, and he needs to do this, and, and he shouldn't be doing that. Well, she said this, and she shouldn't have said that, and she should do this. Listen, instead of, of that, think, Lord, 
I love you, Lord, and I, I want to pray that you'd fill me with, with your love for him. Lord, help me to love her as you love the church, Lord, and forget about myself and to seek to minister to that person and to meet their needs. In fact, Paul says that in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. What transformation can come into a marriage relationship or in a home or in a church, or in a community, or in the world, when we do this, when we love others as we love ourselves. I mean, think about how much time we give to ourselves. You know, when I'm hungry, feed me. I'm going to eat. You know, when, when my kids were, were young, it was, you know, you can't eat. You have no snack before dinner. But dad can have the snack before dinner. Dad can have the snack after dinner. Just eat whenever I want. When I'm tired, I go to bed. When I get up, the old feed me again. I watch what I want to watch on TV. I go where I want to go. I, I take care of myself. I take my shower. I clean myself up. I try to look good. And I do a lot for myself. Now, can we imagine if we put all that energy and focus into others? You know, the husband comes home and he pulls into the driver and he thinks, okay, consider others more important than yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Lord, when I go into the house, let me be thoughtful about my wife. Let me be thoughtful about her needs and what her day was like. And what a great thing that would be. Or the other way around, when the husband comes home, the wife is thinking, okay, I know he's had a hard day, he's worked hard. Let me think about him. Let me think about what I can do to encourage him and help him. Because then all your fights, if you did that, all your fights would be over how to help one another instead of you know how to hurt one another. What a radical statement it was when Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So radical that over in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, after Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the lawyer that asked him the question, he said to Jesus, well, then who exactly is my neighbor? I mean, you say I'm to love my neighbor, and, and, and I, I'm to love them, I need to know who exactly is my neighbor. And that's where Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan. I think we're aware of that. guy was on his way down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by thieves, and he was beaten and stripped and robbed and was laying there naked and, and wounded. And the priest came by and wouldn't even walk near him, one on the other side of the road and, and just passed him by and, and the Levi passed him by as well. And then a man who was a Samaritan, you know, kind of not, not on good terms with the Jews, came and stopped and had compassion. Got off his donkey, tended to the man's wounds, bandaged him up, put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, actually reached in his pocket, took out the money and said, said pay for this guy to stay here. Let him stay here until he gets better. And, and if there's anything more that this doesn't cover, I'll come back and I'll cover that as well. I mean, who's my neighbor? Anyone who is in need. And Jesus said, which one was the neighbor? He said, the man who showed compassion, go and do likewise. Not just the family of God here at Calvary, not just my wife and kids. Anyone who is in need is my neighbor and I need to love my neighbor as myself. John put it this way in 1 John three seventeen and 18, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I read a story of a doctor that listed several emotions that produce certain diseases in human beings, and he listed fear, frustration, rage, resentment, hatred, envy, and jealousy. And he went on to say that the only antidote that can save people from being destroyed by these powerful forces is love. You know, it's a great thing when God sets you free just to love others. Where you can go, you know what, 
I don't have any bitterness in my heart right now towards anyone. I'm not holding on any, any anger towards anyone. And you can just love the Lord and you can love other people and you don't have any hatred, you don't have any bitterness, you don't have any anger or jealousy or resentment in, in, in your life. Those po- poisons that can destroy your life. Instead, you're just, just free to love others. You say, Tom, that sounds impossible. It is. Unless you're born again and you have the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. If not, if you're not born again, then you have the energy or the power or the strength or the ability to love God or to love your neighbors yourself. But no one can truly love God unless they're born again. No one can really have a relationship with God except through the person of of His Son, Jesus Christ. And you need to be filled with His Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. We will also read that it's joy and it's it's gentleness and meekness and kindness and self-control. But those things are the manifestations of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So you need to be filled with the Spirit of God to be able to love not only God, but to be able to love your neighbor as yourself. So how are you doing this morning in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How are you doing this morning in loving your neighbor as yourself? We need to ask ourselves that. Finally, in this last section of Scripture, we read, look at verses 41 through 45. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So these, these, you know, this this lawyer, these these Pharisees, they're trying to... Trap Jesus in this philosophical question, which is the commandments is, is, is the heaviest, which one it is. And, and they, you know, Jesus just brilliantly answers them. But Jesus turns it completely around and he knows that they won't, they won't get it. But, but he says this, this thing to them. And, and, and this passage would have caused great dismay in the minds of the Pharisees because they're so eager to confound and confuse Jesus. See, in the Jewish culture, one would never call his offspring Lord. Why then ask Jesus, is David calling his own offspring Lord? See, tr- truly David is referring to someone greater than himself. If Christ were merely just the son of David, as you suppose, David would never have called him Lord. Now that's a quandary, that's a puzzle they couldn't answer. There's only one answer to it. The reason David called him Lord is because the Messiah that would come would not be Solomon, it would be the Lord Jesus who is both divine and human. Jesus is claiming oneness with the Father who is deity, but they just couldn't wrap their minds around that. In fact, look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. <laughs> they were done. They sent everyone there to question him, and, and, and they just couldn't do it. The scribes, the Pharisees, who prided themselves in their deep knowledge of, of the Scripture were stumped. The Herodians, they got turned away. Sadducees. Here's the the the... the Pharisees, using the written word, Jesus Christ, the living word, beating them at their own game. Well, as we close and enter a time of communion, let me ask you a question. Do you you love the Lord? I mean, do you fully, truly love the Lord? Listen, before you can truly love the Lord, I think you need to know how much God loves you. How do you know that God loves you? Because He sent His Son to die on the cross for you. The Bible says, greater love is no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus went and laid down his life on the cross. It wasn't nails that held him to that cross. It was his love for you that kept him there.
and for me. For God so loved the world. Jesus gave his only begotten son. Uh, Jesus said he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're here this morning. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd come to know him today. He died and rose again from the dead. The Bible says that he stands at the door of your life. And he knocks. If any man hears his voice. He will come in and sup and dine with him. But it's interesting to me that that, that passage in Revelation He's speaking to the church about opening the door and having fellowship with Him. So if we've drifted away, if you've maybe shut the door and you're not loving the Lord as you once did, man, now as we enter a time of communion, now is the time to just go before the Lord and say, Lord, I know that I've blown it. I know I'm not loving you the way I should. I know I'm not loving others the way I should. Forgive me, cleanse me, help me by the power of your Spirit. And God will answer that prayer because it's the will of God in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. The time that we can close in with communion. Lord, a time to really uh, examine our our lives, Lord, and to ask ourselves maybe some tough questions. Lord, am I loving you as I should? Lord, am I longing for that personal time to spend with you, Lord? Is that a priority in my life? Lord, do I love the things that you love? Lord, do I hate the things that you hate? Lord, am I longing for your return? Lord, I thank you for your love. We thank you for your love for us. But Lord, maybe we're not loving others as you love us. Lord, if there's some person in my life that I can think of that I'm not loving the way I should, would you change my heart? Change my mind. Lord, help me to love that person by the power of your Holy Spirit as you love me. Lord, you love me so much that while I was a sinner, while I was dead in my sins and trespasses, you died for me. Lord, help me to die to my pride, my self-centeredness, my selfishness, and to love others the way you love us. Thank you, Lord. Bless this time of communion now, we pray. We commit it to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.